Genesis 27 is where we'll pick up, close to where we left off on Sunday. We'll start there. What a mess. Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau and no one is without sin in the story. No one is clean or clear. We looked at all that on Sunday and what ends up happening is Genesis 27 comes to this sobbing, seething end for Esau as the story, this part of the story anyway, concludes. We saw Jacob receiving Isaac's blessing rightfully by his birthright, uh, though deceitfully wrangled. (laughs) Thanks, Mom. Rebecca is the mom, so thanks, Mom. But in verse 38, Esau lets out this mournful wail as he realizes the fallout of despising the birthright. You see, even someone who's corrupt has feelings. And he wails in verse 38, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, oh, my father. So Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. And while I think because he was such a man of the flesh, Esau just wanted inheritance, wanted, you know, for himself a portion. There's still something, as we talked about on Sunday, of a father's blessing. And so he cries out, he's weeping, bless me, bless me too. How can he be blessed after doing this? Bless me, father. But Isaac holds fast. Isaac, in verse 33, had already said, yes, and he shall be blessed, and in that moment confirmed what he finally understood to be the will of God all along. I said Sunday, this is an epic moment in the life of Isaac because he finally comes around to realizing God has a will, and he's part of that, and God is going to accomplish his will even if we try to set ourselves against it. It is inexorable. It is unstoppable. And so Hebrews 11, verse 20 says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come, which is an interesting way to put it. Listen again. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob, which we see him do, and Esau, even regarding things to come. But does Isaac then bless Esau? If you've read ahead, it begins as more of a curse, But regarding things to come, it ends as a prophetic word. So watch this tonight. Picking up in verse 39, then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, behold, away from, and if your Bible translates differently, that's correct. Away from the fertility or the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling. Away from the dew of heaven above. Agriculturally, Esau was no farmer anyway, and the earth would provide no fatness, no sweet dew. The idea here is that you are going to live in rocky places, in desolate, dry dwellings, as in Edom, as we've said, southern Jordan today. This would be the homeland of the people of Esau, exactly as is spoken here by Isaac, his father. But suddenly, Isaac now downshifts into prophecy for Esau's 
posterity. This goes way beyond Esau, verse 40. By your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke from your neck. And suddenly, Isaac, now back in faith, now having believed God and blessed Jacob, Isaac gives this threefold prophecy, three parts to it. You might note sword, servitude, and insurgency. Sword, servitude, and insurgency. First sword, by your sword you shall live. We see this play out. Moses and the children of Israel, they seek passage through Edom to the land of, of their promise. Numbers 29:18. Edom, however, said to him, you shall not pass through us or I will come out with the sword against you. By your sword you shall live. And Numbers 29, verse 20, and Edom came out against Israel with a heavy force and a strong hand. This would be the attitude then of the people of Esau, the sword. Secondly, servitude, your brother you shall serve. And truly, historically, Edom was dominated by Israel for the next 900 years until insurgency. Insurgency. He says, interestingly, it shall come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke from your neck. In 2 Kings chapter 8, we read the story of the Edomites rebelling against Judah and King Joram at the time, breaking the yoke. They break free from servitude to Israel or to Judah for about 50 years. They are free to themselves. But then Amaziah comes along, comes in power, in Judah, and 2 Kings 14, verse seven says, he killed of Edom in the Valley of Salt 10,000 and took Selah by war. Selah, anyone know what Selah is? Do you remember? It's Petra. Petra is Selah. Selah in the wilderness. He took Selah by war and he named it Yokthiel, which means the blessedness of God to this day. 2 Kings 14, seven. So for a time, Edom will break the yoke of Israel and you can just read that in the Bible. That comes to pass. That comes true. But it doesn't end there. And I want to quickly show you something tonight. I think a prophetic thread that weaves through history that may yet be weaving today that is much bigger than Esau, much bigger than the history of Edom and the people of Israel. Keep your finger here and go over again to Malachi chapter 1, the last book of the Hebrew Scriptures. Malachi, or as he is known in Italy, Malachi. <laughs> Boy, tough crowd, tough crowd. <laughs> Malachi, the Italian prophet. Okay, book of Malachi, chapter one. Malachi writing at about 420 to 400 BC, the last of the prophecies of the Hebrews until John the Baptist. He'll be the last Hebrew prophet. But Malachi writes... Verse one, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And we talked about what he means by that and how that plays. And I have made his, that is Esau's mountains, a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Verse four, though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return, we will build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down and men will call them 
the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Notice, not just at a point in history, but forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. What's interesting is we begin to understand when we see God devote an entire prophetic letter to the destruction of Edom. And that is the book of Ovadia, or Obadiah, we say. Obadiah, Ovadiah, turn, turn there. Go back just a few. It's, it's just a few prophets back. Obadiah, actually written 400 years earlier than Malachi, but written as a prophecy, an end times, last days prophecy against Edom. And again, keeping in mind that by your sword you shall live, your brother you shall serve, it shall come about when you become restless, you'll break his yoke from your neck. And we could say, historically fulfilled, but there seems to be more to it. So Obadiah, verse one, it's only one chapter. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations saying, arise, let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, Petra, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Doesn't that sound familiar? One who would raise himself up above but would be brought down? Is that not Ezekiel's prophecy, even Isaiah's prophecies of Satan? And so there's a parallel here. I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Verse five, if thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? Oh, if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. So follow this through. After he lost the blessing, Esau, brother of Jacob, was determined to destroy Jacob. We'll see in our story tonight. Wants to murder Jacob. He's gonna wait until Isaac dies and then he's gonna kill his brother. And the Edomites long maintained that same opposition to Israel. Hated their relatives, truly, the Jewish people. Well, down the line of history, after the Jews went into Babylonian captivity in 586, a little while after that, a man by the name of Agag, who was from Amalek, the Amalekites, who came from Esau. The Amalekites came out of the Edomites. And this Agag attempted, or a man of Agag, his name wasn't Agag, but he was from Agag, of Amalek, of Edom, attempted genocide against the Jews in Persia. His name was Haman. So Haman was, by genealogy, an Edomite of the line of Esau. Well, then around 300 BC, a group of people, interesting people called the Nabataeans, they came into Edom. They drove out the Edomites. They took over the rose-red city of Petra, driving the Edomites out, and the people of Edom of the line of Esau, they ended up southeast in Israel in the Negev at a place south there of Hebron. And they moved in and they didn't have anywhere to go. The Jews gave them sanctuary. 
The Jews said, stay in the land, you're welcome to live here. And so they moved into that place and that area came to be known as Idumea. And they were known then as the Idumeans. Idumeans in Idumea. Well, that was around 300. Then in around 134 BC, a man rises to power in Israel. He's actually a son of one of the original Maccabees. His name is John Hyrcanus. And John Hyrcanus, a, a hero in Israel, rose to lead the people. And they came to the Edomites, or the Idumeans, and he said to them, if you will be circumcised, and if you will adopt Jewish faith, you can stay here and live. If you choose not to, you can die. Wasn't much of a choice, so they loosely became uh, Jewish or at least adopted the Jewish faith. They were circumcised. And then politics played its game. 48 BC, Julius Caesar. He appoints a man, an Idumean, by the name of Antipater, to be governor of Judea. Antipater comes in, he rules, he has a son who he will pass that rule along to, a cruel, paranoid, archaeological genius by the name of Herod. So there's Herod's connection all the way back to Esau, being his son of his father, who is Antipater the Idumean. So Herod is an Idumean. You know the story of Herod. You know what he did. He built great buildings and he massacred infants. And after Herod, the Idumeans still had a part to play in the history of Israel. Josephus tells us in AD 70, as the Romans were about to lay siege to Jerusalem, the Idumeans, 20,000 strong at that point, made a deal with the Jewish people. They said, we'll fight alongside you, we will stand with you. But when they came into Jerusalem, they turned on the Jewish people. They began to slaughter them, and Rome then flooded in and finished the job. Well, the Idumeans at that point made their way out of there to safety where their descendants would settle and live to this very day in the city of Rome. Now, if you're following this thread from Esau, breathing murderous threats against Jacob all the way down through histories we've described and ending up the people of Esau in Rome. Daniel chapter nine, verse 26 says, the people of the prince who is to come, speaking of Antichrist, will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined and that is fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. The people who cause the fall of Jerusalem, who bring about this destruction, who destroy the city and the sanctuary are the people of the prince who is to come. Now, most conservative scholars believe Antichrist will then be of Roman or Eastern European descent, but wouldn't it be ironic if that blood included a mix of Idumean or Edomite blood, that there may be some of Esau all the way down the line in Antichrist, which would further explain why the Lord would say in Malachi 1.3, I have hated Esau. Anyone set against the plan of the Lord, anyone set against the grace of God that would bring about salvation. But when is the day that Esau becomes restless and breaks his brother's yoke from off of his neck. Is it past tense or is it future tense? Did it happen? Well, we see historically to a degree it did for 50 years. Is there another time yet 
future. If you read in Obadiah, verse 15, for the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. He's speaking still to Edom. Your dealings will return on your own head because just as you drank on my holy mountain, that is blood implied, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow or stagger and become as if they never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape and it will be holy and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be like a fire and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau as stubble. And they will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. And then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel, who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. That sounds to me like it's gonna ultimately play out yet future. And so there is a, a connection here of this murderous, angry man that just seeds his family and continues to play out over time and may yet have a final play as Antichrist comes to power in Israel, shakes off the yoke of Jacob, calls for control, maintains control for a short time until Messiah comes and wipes him out. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 31, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And that can certainly apply to Jacob with Esau at the last. Well, back in Genesis chapter 27, this prophetic word is given, fascinating, uh, mysterious, still, I believe, in play in verse 41, and then, or verse 40, and then verse 41, so Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah. And she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Haran, to my brother Laban. Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides. And he forgets what you did to him. <laughs> That's interesting, Rebecca says, what you did. Mom, then I will send and I will get you from there, she says. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? And here we see the combination of Isaac's violation, Rebecca's instigation, Jacob's deception, and Esau's corruption is now tearing this family apart. And you know what's fascinating? This family has been sojourning in the land of Israel for 77 years together sharing their tents and their flocks and herds. Esau out hunting, Jacob shepherding, Isaac there, Rebekah, evening spent together. 77 years, they are a family. They're together. 
but all four decide to act in the flesh and the family blows up. By the way, she says, go for a few days, verse 44, stay with him a few days. A few days will turn into 20 years. And sadly, by the time Jacob does return to the land, Rebekah's dead. He will never see his mother again. And she will never see her son. But, but what does she mean when she says, why should I be bereaved of you both in one day, verse 45? Her concern is that if Esau kills Jacob as he's threatening, by the Noahic covenant, Esau must be executed. If one kills the other, the, other's gonna, the one is gonna be killed too. She'll lose them both. And so with the heart of a mother, she says, you've gotta get out of here so that I can protect you and him. Him from his stupid ways and you from his stupid ways. <laughs> so she calls on him to flee, to get out. And then in verse 46, Rebecca said to Isaac, I'm tired of living because of the daughters of Chet. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Chet like these, remember Esau's two wives, she didn't like them. They didn't get along, so much for the peace. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Chet like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? What is Rebecca doing? She's still playing the game. She's still working her husband. She now needs to get her husband on board to send Jacob away because if Isaac sends Jacob away, he goes not only with his blessing, he goes with his covering and Esau can't touch him. So she's a smart cookie. And Rebecca gets her husband on board, verse one of chapter 28. So Isaac called Jacob and, note this, blessed him and charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty, that is El Shaddai, bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you that you may possess the land of your sojournings which God gave to Abraham. This is remarkable to me. Isaac's owning the blessing. This is, this is not another blessing, it's a continuation of the blessing, and Isaac is now saying to his son Jacob, it is all you, I understand it's supposed to be all you, and I bless you now. And he pours out blessing on his son. Isaac has accepted the will of God. It's the only way you come to peace. By faith, you accept the will of God, and here he confirms God's choice in this Abrahamic covenant. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew twenty two thirty one regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. This was always intended to be Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and now Isaac's on board, and he gets it. And reading through this blessing, listen one more time, may El Shaddai bless you make you fruitful and multiply you so that you may come, become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may possess the land of your sojournings which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac now is repeating the Abrahamic covenant to his son. And it's a beautiful covenant. 
And if you compare what Isaac says here to what the Lord said to Isaac, to what the Lord had said to Abraham before him, it's very close. And he is finally handing now over to his son the full blessing. Verse five, then Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. He's headed to Padan Aram. Where's that? Okay, they're down in uh, Tel Sheva, Beersheba, down to the south of Israel. It's the northern, actually, tip of what's called the Negev, the Israeli desert. And he begins to make his way north. Padan Aram is a 450-mile journey up to the north and around and into what would be Syria today. Southern Syria, so Aramaic Syria. So he's got a long journey ahead of him, and I want you just to note this. A 450-mile journey for Jacob, and he will not make it back until Rebekah has passed on. Now think about what that, what that says. Jacob leaves the land and does not fully come back into his own in the land until Rebekah is gone. Bible students, what is Rebecca a picture of in Genesis 24? The church. Jacob, a picture of the people of Israel, is out of the land. Will not come back into the land fully anyway, fully into his own until Rebecca's gone. In the same way, it's been a long journey for Israel. And Israel will not return spiritually until the church has passed on until the church is gone. Verse six. Now Esau saw, it'd be a lot easier if they just said, now Esau, that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take to himself a wife from there and that when he blessed him, he charged him saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan, Padan, Padan Aram so Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac. So you can say four times in verses six, seven, and eight, Esau saw. Esau saw Isaac blessed Jacob. He saw that he blessed him and said, don't take a wife from here. He saw Jacob obey his mother and father and head on up to the north. And he saw that the daughters of Canaan were displeasing to his father Isaac. Esau saw. And verse nine, then Esau went to Ishmael. Remember Ishmael? Now Ishmael's dead by now. So when it says he went to Ishmael, it's talking about he went to the family of Ishmael. And he married, besides the wives he already had, Mahalat, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaiot. This is what Esau saw. He saw with natural vision. He's looking with carnal eyes, eyes of the flesh. What Esau is doing here is he appraises the situation naturally. And in seeing all that takes place before him, he puts two and two together and gets 11. He comes to the wrong solution, but his solution shows that Esau, he still doesn't get it. He does not understand the birthright. He doesn't understand the covenant. He doesn't understand the Abrahamic covenant given by God that is being passed along through Jacob. He just doesn't get it. 
Kidner puts it this way. He says, his attempt to do the approved thing was, like most religious efforts of the natural man, superficial and ill-judged. Let's go marry another wife. Well, they're not happy with the first two. Better go get a new one. Three wrongs don't make a right. And Esau goes out and does the wrong thing. He marries Mahalat. Mahalat probably is a nickname because we find out that her actual name is Basmat, which is the same as one of Esau's other wives, so I'm sure that was fun in the house. Confusing. But Basmat was her name. You can read that in Genesis 36, verse three. Mahalat, the reason I think it's a nickname is it means stringed instrument. He marries stringed instrument. You could say that Esau still thinks he can play for his father's approval. (laughs) Still thinks, if I do this, This will get dad to bless me. If you've ever been in a situation of family dysfunction and the father refuses to bless, it doesn't really matter what you do. It's not gonna fix the problem. It's certainly not gonna fix the problem trying to go out of your way to do something that you think this father wants. How much better just to please God? Please your heavenly father You know exactly what he wants. There's no question of the will of God in our lives that we love each other and that we love him. And we seek to please our heavenly father. What's amazing is we already have the blessing. And so we please God our father. And when our earthly father is not able to be pleased, you know, But on the other hand, some people try to please God by thinking if I can be more religious, that will please him. That will bring the blessing. You already have the blessing. Do you understand you already have it? By faith in Jesus Christ, you become a son, a daughter of God the Father, and he loves you, and he blesses you with salvation and grace and mercy and peace. He's already put his hand on you. Some are still trying to come up, well, but maybe if I do this, maybe if I do that, I just gotta do one more thing. There's something lacking in my Christian faith I've got to do. Stop it. Knock it off. You're not gonna make God love you more. You can't. You can't possibly make him love you more than he does. And he's not gonna love you less. Well, so do nothing? No, there's still the birthright. There's still responsibility in the family. There's still a call to live for him and by him and to share him with as many people as we can, we still have things that we get to do. It's the have-tos that God is always saying, stop. But see, it's the natural man who goes after these superficial things. 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And so Esau doesn't get it. He marries Mahalat. He brings her home. Doesn't work. It's just more of a mess. Romans 8, verse 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Well, let's leave Esau and continue on with Jacob. Verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. Now he's headed to the north. He's gonna travel 50, 60 miles. In verse 11, and he came to a certain place and spent the night there. 
because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. A stone for a pillow. I don't think that would sell. My stonepillow.com. I don't see this working. Somebody called the my pillow guy. What do you put in those things? I mean, the, the stone pillow. And, and people are like, oh, yeah, he pulled up a stone and put his head on it. I can't imagine sleeping on that. And he may not have. Because the actual phrase here, it's not under his head, but it's at his head. So he pulled a stone up at his head and he went to sleep. Now you might wonder, okay, well, why? Why did he do that? Why put a stone in his head? What's, what's behind that? I have no idea. I'm just making it clear that it's probably not something he put his head on. A headrest, I don't know. I guess it's possible. But we do know it went to someone's head. Scottish folklore. Have you heard this one? Have you heard of the stone of scone? Do not put jelly on this. The stone of scone is a Scottish uh, sandstone it's larger than a brick, probably about that big. And this Scottish sandstone has been passed back and forth. I'm not sure where it is right now. It's either in Britain or it's in Scotland. It goes back and forth and back and forth. The Scots claim that this stone of scone was brought by Jeremiah into Scotland and was the original stone of Jacob's pillowdom. This is a stone he rested his head on. Not likely, then the British came along, and, and British Israelism, which argues that the stone belongs to the crown, because you see, the crown actually are the offspring of the Israelites. The lost tribes of Israel made their way into Great Britain and became the British. And that's replacement theology, and it's British Israelism, and it's completely wrong. And so you've got the stone of scones going back and forth and back and forth between the two, and nobody sleeps on it. We don't worship stones and bones, or relics by ritual. We worship the living God. Amen? We follow Jesus. But what's interesting in verse 11, forget the stone, he came to a certain place, it says. Certain place is the Hebrew word makom. You might want to note this because Jewish people still today will use this as a term for God, hamakom. You may have heard hashem, hashem meaning the name. But they will also refer to him as Hamakom, which means the place. He came to the place. And so they use this phrase. It's interesting. He's not just the person, he's the place. God, the place. Hamakom. Jesus said in John 14, 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know what makes the place prepared so great? It's not the kitchen. It's not the dining room. It's not the bedroom. It's not the size of the mattress that you'll have in that place prepared in heaven. It's Jesus. I wanna be in the place prepared because he's there. He really is hamakom. He is the place. Because wherever Jesus is, is the place that I wanna be. Jesus is there, that where I am, he says, that where I am, you may also be. And verse 12, so he comes to this certain place, Hamakom, and he had a dream. And behold, 
a ladder was set on the earth which it's, with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Very famous dream. You've probably heard this single verse before. So he has this dream. We call it Jacob's ladder. Only the word that's translated ladder is sulam. It's the only time this word is used in the entire Hebrew Bible. Sulam, and it better translates stairway. It's not a ladder. This is a stairway. This is a stairway to heaven. I mean, it really is. Led Zeppelin got it completely wrong. You can't buy it. But you can ascend it. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But I want you to note this, this stairway that's set on the earth which is with its top reaching to heaven. Notice what the angels are doing. They're both ascending and descending. They're not just descending, that is coming from heaven, but they're ascending, that is they're coming from earth which very clearly means going up and coming down, there are angels down here. There are angels among us. Peter said, you may be entertaining angels unaware. You might not even know it. A little angelology for you. Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones, Jesus said, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Good news, our children have angels, and they need them. They need them bad. Guardian angels, that's where the concept of guardian angels comes from. It comes from Jesus, and he says, yes, children have an angel. What's funny to me, when the angel rescued Peter from prison, do you remember the story? Acts chapter 12. Let me just pick it up and read a little to you. The angel gets him out, takes him into the street, and Peter ends up at the front door of a home group. They're having Bible study. They're in there praying. They're praying for Peter. It's, it's hysterical to me because Peter came to himself, Acts 12 verse 11, and he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting and when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And he knocked on the door of the gate. A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. Well, it gets funnier. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. Can I just ask, what is harder to believe? <laughs> that Peter was rescued from prison and he's standing out there waiting to be let in or his angel is there? They believed in angels. They bought it. They, they knew something's up here. Peter continued knocking and when they opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. <laughs> so there are angels among us. And there are angels that are ministering spirits. In fact, the Bible says, Hebrews 1.14, are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. That is, not only are there guardian angels for children, but there are angels for believers. There are ministering spirits. I, I don't know how this works, other than we see Jesus in the garden being tended to by angels. That means, at some point in your life, it is highly likely 
but you were tended by angels. Now, I'm not getting all into, you know, angel worship. We're not going there. There's one we worship, and his name is Jesus. But God sends ministering spirits to those who are of the saved, to his people. Ministering spirits, I don't know, to encourage, uh, to, to protect, to stand beside. That's why I love the Frank Peretti novels, This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness. I think they're a good read, and even now they still apply. The picture there of, of being in prayer and our prayer aligning with God and actually releasing angels to do their work. We know they work among us. We know the Bible is very clear that they are ministering spirits. We also know that they can get upset. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10, therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 11 is really a fun passage to teach. Talking about women and, you know, when women pray and prophesy in the assembly, so it's assumed that that was going on, they should do so with their head covered. So does that mean that all women need to have a head covering? No, then Paul says, but God gave them their hair is a covering, so they're, they're covered. And this whole conversation in 1 Corinthians 11, fascinating, but it really gets weird when Paul says, and then the woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. And he doesn't explain it. I feel like the people telling Rhoda that's an angel out there. We're just, we don't know what's going on. She ought to have authority because of the angels, because of the angels. And the only thing I can figure is that there is established roles for men, for women in the church fellowship. There are roles that God has called us to, that he has set up. There is a way to do church decently and in order. For as 1 Corinthians 14 also tells us God is not a God of confusion. So because of the angels, Paul said, do it right be in order because of the angels. Angels know something about things getting out of order. Jude 6 tells us angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Can you imagine what it was like in heaven among the angels that did not fall but watched it happen? Bible seems to indicate that a third of the angels fell when Satan fell, when Lucifer fell. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, you can study that out on your own. A third of the angels fell, meaning two-thirds remained. What was that like to be among the two-thirds and to watch this happen, to watch a church split in heaven? How awful. And so I think there's something to this that Angels get uncomfortable when things get out of order in worship. That there is an orderly and beautiful and true and genuine way to worship God that's not gonna upset the angels. It's worship that really isn't about us at all. That's, honestly, that's when worship gets out of order, when it becomes about me. When it's my likes, my styles, my taste, my attitudes, when all the songs tend to talk about my life rather than worship of the Lord. We're here to worship God. By the way, when we worship God, all of the concerns of our lives tend to get taken care of when we're in proper perspective. Worship is for Jesus. Revelation 19 verse 10 tells us the angel is standing before John 
and I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours, and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The angel knows it is all about Jesus, and guess who is standing at the stairway? Verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it, and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Okay, wait, before he gets into the covenant again, it says, behold, the Lord stood above it, but the phrase above it can either be translated beside it, the Lord stood beside it, or more likely, note this, and the Lord stood beside him, meaning Jacob. Now some think, Arnold Fruchtenbaum is one, and I have great respect for Fruchtenbaum, but he, he says, no, what it was is at the top of the ladder, he looked up and saw the Shekinah glory of God there, and God spoke in that great bright cloud of glory at the top of, of the stairway. But the indication of scripture is much more personal than that. Rather than Jesus at the top of the stairs or the glowing cloud at the top of the stairs, Jesus may be right by Jacob as Jacob sees this amazing vision in this amazing dream. It fits with what he's about to say. Again, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Does that sound familiar? That's the Abrahamic covenant yet again. Spoken first to Abraham, spoken to Isaac, and now spoken a third time to Jacob, the same covenant promises. All three patriarchs heard this directly from God. This is Jacob's first revelation. All three heard it directly. All three patriarchs heard the same promise of the land, of an innumerable seed of people, and even of being a blessing to all the nations, that is salvation to the very ends of the earth. So the pattern is here. What the Lord says to Jacob in this dream is exactly what he said to Isaac. It's exactly what he said to Abraham, but then he says something else. He adds something here, and it's part of why I think this is Jesus at the foot of the stairway right by Jacob rather than simply the glory at the top of the stairway. He adds something here. Two things are unique for Jacob. First thing is that his vision, note this, comes indirectly. That's interesting. Do you realize this is the first patriarchal dream revelation? Every other time God has brought the covenant, he's come face to face in the visible God. So the person of Jesus, pre-incarnate, shows up, brings the covenant. This is the first time it happens in a dream. Why? Why does Jacob get it in a dream, but Isaac got it face to face, and Abraham got it face to face? Why a dream? Someone might be tempted to say, well, that's not fair, and I say, oh, no, that's more than fair. In fact, I think it's better. Why? Wouldn't you rather see God face to face than hear from him in a dream? In the dream, you wake up and you go, was that real? Was that the Lord? Did he really speak to me? Did I just make that up in my 
Sleep? Why would he appear to Jacob in a dream? And I think the exact same reason he appeared to Joseph in a dream, though he appeared in person to Mary. When he told Mary, you're gonna have a son and name him Jesus, he said the same thing, the angel Gabriel, but he doesn't appear to him face to face. He comes in a dream to Joseph. Why? Because Joseph is going to need, listen, more faith. Mary needed the encouragement of just knowing this is what's going on. Joseph is gonna have to have faith drawn out of him, and I think the dream revelation here requires more faith, and Jacob needs faith. God is teaching Jacob to speak the language of faith, so he comes to him in a dream because you know what's gonna happen? Jacob is gonna have to go further out on the limb of faith than Abraham or Isaac ever did. And we'll see this story play out in Jacob's life, but he's gonna have to trust God beyond what his father, beyond what his grandfather did. He's gonna have to go to some place of prophecy and understanding with these 12 unruly boys that he's gonna have. And it all is gonna require faith, a great faith. Joel chapter two, verse 28 tells us, it will come about after this, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Young men see visions, they probably need the encouragement. Old men dream dreams because that's the stuff of faith. And we wake and we say yes, the Lord spoke. At Pentecost, Peter confirmed that the dreaming began in the last days. 2,000 years ago began the last days and has continued on. It is in play right now. That is, your young men will see visions, but your old men will dream dreams. So old men, dream on. Dream on. Stairway to heaven and dream on. It's like classic Rewind Wednesday. (laughs) But Jacob's vision not only comes indirectly requiring faith from this man, but his vision comes with imminent guarantees. And this is what's different than what Abraham or Isaac, either one got. Verse 15, behold, he says, I am with you, number one, and will keep you wherever you go, number two and will bring you back to this land, number three, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you, number four. He gets a fourfold guarantee that his fathers did not get. A remarkable guarantee. He gets, first of all, immediacy. I am with you. Jacob, I'm with you. By the way, before we go on, note this. There is not a single reprimand or rebuke of Jacob by God. First time God talks to him after the whole mess of chapter 27, after the family explodes, after the deception of his father. And God doesn't come into him and go, Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. Let's deal with your mess. Let's clean up your deception. If you're gonna follow me, you're not gonna do it like you did it. Let's square things. No, not a word of that. Just, (laughs) I'm with you. I'm with you, Jacob immediacy. Secondly, he gets indemnity. I will keep you wherever you go. Indemnity, insurance, I'm with you. I will keep you. Thirdly, intentionality, I will bring you back to this land. Remember, he's on his way out now. It's about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. 
And in this place where he's having this dream, the Lord says, I'm gonna bring, he hasn't even left the land yet. And God's saying, I'm gonna bring you back. I love how God always, that's the beauty of prophecy. God always saying, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do it for you and in you and with you. Trust me. So when Jesus says, I'm with you to the very end of the age, I believe him. Why? Because he said, I'm gonna bring you back. And guess what? He's gonna bring Jacob back. Just as he said, immediacy, I'm with you. Indemnity, I will keep you wherever you go. Intentionality, I will bring you back to this land. And finally, intimacy. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And by the way, that doesn't mean that when he's done what he's promised him, he's gonna leave. <laughs> the implication is simply, I'm gonna see you through to the end. And he will. God is with Jacob. And I read this and I go, man, what a dream. What an, an amazing dream. And Jesus then, he comes along and gives us remarkable insight into this dream, into what it was that, Jacob actually saw in this stairway to heaven. I'll just read it to you. John chapter one, verse 43, says the next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Three main cities were the three cities that are towns that Jesus visited more than any other in the Galilee, Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. And I've mentioned this before, I call it the ministry triangle of Jesus. Capernaum was right on the, the western side, northwestern side of the Galilee, Capernaum, and then Chorazin would be north of that a bit, and then over on the northern tip of the Galilee and inland just a little bit, Bethsaida. So you had these three places. And so Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. They're all fishermen of Bethsaida. Which, by the way, Bethsaida means house of fish, so that helps. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him or of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. I love this, Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? <laughs> That's like someone saying to you, hey, here comes the most humble person I've ever met. How do you know me so well? <laughs> An Israelite in whom there is no guile. Nathaniel says, well, how do you know? Jesus answered and said to him, well, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, and Nathaniel immediately answers him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. What? Because you saw him under a fig tree? And by the way, the son of God, the king of Israel? are messianic titles. When Nathaniel blurts this out, declares this, he's declaring right out of Psalm 2, messianic titles, son of God, king of Israel. And Jesus said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Such an interesting moment. What's, what's the big deal here? Well, first off, as long as we're here. So he saw Nathaniel under a fig tree. Listen, Nathaniel was from Cana of Galilee. So again, if you imagine my hand being the Galilee, it's not a very good representation or likeness, but just go with me on this. So if my hand is the Galilee, and we have, uh, we have Capernaum, and we have Chorazim, and we have Bethsaida, where's Cana? 
It's over there. Cana is a good 10 miles of rocky terrain east of Capernaum. And if they're in Bethsaida when he meets Jesus, that's another good 15-mile trek from the north end of the Sea of Galilee to get all the way out to Cana, where Nathanael was from. So if Nathanael was under his fig tree in Cana, as the text implies, either on that morning or the day before, and Jesus saw him, there is no natural way Jesus could have saw him, seen him there. No way with his physical eyes that Jesus could have seen Nathanael. This, this is why Nathanael is so blown away. It's not just he walked by and, oh, there's Nat under a fig tree. No, he, he couldn't have seen him. He was so far removed. And so when Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree, the other implication here is that he was probably under the fig tree in prayer or meditating. And he knows that Jesus knows. How does Jesus know what I was doing, where I was? How did he see me there? This is the only miracle of what I would call optical omnipresence. It's the only time in the, in the miracles of Jesus where he is omnipresent by vision, where he says, oh yeah, I saw you there. When he couldn't have seen him there, it's seeing beyond geography. But the distance isn't even the most impressive thing. Verse 51, and he said to him, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see, or literally you will all see, talking to the disciples, the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Did you hear that? On the Son of Man, Jesus is the stairway to heaven. And he says the dream, and it was a dream. This is also part of why it was a dream, that, that Jacob's faith would increase, but also because it would be a picture for later on where Jesus says, the angels ascend and descend on me. I'm the stairway. I am the way to the Father. And, and there's a really good chance when Nathaniel was under the fig tree, he was reading about Jacob's dream which is why Jesus points this out. Nathaniel's blown away. So back to the dream. Jesus applies it to himself. He says, I am the stairway. This is, this is me. And the Lord's speaking there. That's the Lord Jesus. And Jacob's dream brings this promise of salvation extending even out to the Gentiles, this, this portent of salvation through Jesus Christ who is the stairway to heaven. Well, watch Jacob's response to all this. Verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. Oh, how I hate to miss the Lord when he shows up. You know why we don't know when the Lord is there? It's when, like Esau, we're using eyes of the flesh. It's when we're appraising things in the natural man, the natural woman. We miss God. And he says, surely the Lord is in this place. Note the language. He is in this place, and I did not know it. So Jacob realizes something. He, when he first laid down, went to sleep, it was just another night, no big deal. He's probably weary from the 50, 60-mile journey up to the north. Lays down, doesn't even realize what he's doing, even thinking about what he's doing. Sometimes that happens right here in church. Not even thinking about, you know, your mind trails off. Thinking about something at home, maybe the bills, 
lunch tomorrow, going over your schedule in your head, and then you hear the name Jesus, and you go, oh, what, 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 what? Oh, whoa, the Lord's in this place. I didn't know it. <laughs> so Jacob's there, and he, he has no idea. But the Lord is there, present tense, the Lord is there. In verse 17, he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is a, a trembling of, of awesomeness, of, of fear. God's here. This dream was vivid and real and immediately retained and remembered by Jacob. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, Bet Elohim. And this is the gate, he says, of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. What's he doing? This is an act of consecration. We don't use the word consecration enough, so let's use the word dedication. That what Jacob is doing is dedicating the stone perhaps his stone pillow or the stone that was by his head, for whatever reason, he now sets it up, pours oil on it as, as an altar, if you will, a dedication to the Lord. That, that this certain place, this hamakom, this is the house of God. Later, the angel of God is going to appear to Jacob in Padan Aram, saying, Genesis 31, 13, I am the God of Bethel, Bethel where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me, now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. So Jacob is at Bethel. We say Bethel, Bethel, in Hebrew. Jacob's now there, and Bethel is second only to Jerusalem in the number of times it's mentioned in the Bible. This is a very significant city, a very important city. A lot of important things happened there, but not always good things. In fact, ultimately, Bethel eventually became a high place. It was notorious for idolatrous sacrifice. Human sacrifice happened at Bethel, this place that originally was consecrated to God, but oh, how religion can twist even things given to the Lord. Well, verse 19, he called the name of that place Bethel, However, previously, the name of the city had been Ludz. Ludz. House of God, Bethel. Ludz means either almond tree or separation. Formerly, it was separation. Now it is house of God. What a picture is that? We all used to be Ludz. Separated, lost, Ephesians 2.11, therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. Well, you could say we were losers. Oh, come on, Rachel, are you with me? Losers. I thought that was good. Tough crowd, tough crowd. Remember, you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were separated like lewds, and now we have become Bethel, the house of God. 
separated until he opened up the stairway to heaven, who is Jesus himself, that we might come to the Lord through Jesus, that we are invited to the house of God. Well, verse 20, then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you if then. And that sounds like a major faith problem. If you'll do this, well then, yeah, okay, then I'll, I'll come on board. If you do these things, then you'll be my God. It's like foxhole faith. You know, you hear about this in battle. Down in the foxhole, it doesn't look like you're gonna get out and all kinds of faith comes to light at that time. If you get me out of this, Lord. I think I said that on a date once. I don't, anyway, if you get me out of this, I will serve you with my life. So I'm here teaching tonight because that date did not go well. He got me out though. No, if you do this, then I will do my part and it's conditional fact, it's kind of a sadly conditional response to God from Jacob, who by this time I'm hoping, you know, hey, I had the dream, and it's Bethel, and we're having this amazing experience, and he consecrates to the Lord, and then he says, okay, here's the deal. If then, is your faith like that? Is my faith like that? If God does this, then I'll believe him. If God proves himself to me, then I'll follow him. If God makes provision, then I'll tithe. If God gets me safely to my house, I'll come worship him from time to time in his house. How many of us suffer from an if-then faith? I don't think this is what Jacob is saying at all. And there is an option, an alternative to the if-then faith because the if in verse 20 in the Hebrew can also be translated since. Listen to it this way. Since God will be with me and keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up a pillar will be God's house and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Since you've done this, then I can't help but do that. See, that's grace. By grace you have been saved and this not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. By faith, I always get by faith out of order there, but it's by faith that no man can boast. We have been given grace. Since we've been given such a great grace, then we are free to follow him. We are free to trust him. Since I know he's my great provider, I'm free to tithe. I'm, I'm free to not worry about, am I gonna have enough this month? I, that's up to him. Since he takes care of me, since he has looked after my family, since he saved me, since he went to the cross before I was even born, since God did all this stuff, how can I not then respond in faith? Since then, or if then. And the question is, which one is it gonna be? Hebrews 4.14 says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, 
let us hold fast our confession. Since then, since Jesus is the stairway to heaven, then let's be ready to go when he says, come up here. Amen? Verse one of chapter 29 just says, Jacob went on his journey. And I just wanna point this out. Went on his journey is lifted up his feet. Jacob's got happy feet. Jacob is now from this place coming out of the family mess, the family explosion, the family destruction. He ends up there at Lourdes, feeling like a loser, and he renames it Bethel, house of God, having this amazing dream experience, hearing from the Lord, the covenant supported and strengthened and confirmed, and now he wakes up, he consecrates the rock, and he is praising God since he's done this. What else can I do but trust him? And off he goes, lifting up his feet, continuing on his journey, knowing he's in good hands. And that's how I wanna live, with feet lifted up, so that when I'm lifted up, I'm ready to go. Let's pray. 